That's all we got? Okay. We'll make do. I don't know if that helps you or not, but that make it worse? Can you? No, not that one. Okay, I think we're good. We'll just deal with it this way. Um, okay, it's very interesting. I've known Greg Wickfield for uh, a long time, and probably uh, John and Cece remember. Uh, Greg and I coached baseball together about 15 years ago, roughly, and, uh, and Jeremy was on one of those teams. So uh, it goes way back. Um, those were great days, and uh, I learned a lot. Today we're in Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, we're starting at verse 7 and going to the end of the chapter. And uh, so if you want to turn in your Bibles, there is no insert uh, for you today. Um, my little printer at home just wasn't going to churn them out, so... You're just going to have to pretend you're like it's some other regular kind of a church. Um, the, uh, so, listen uh, carefully. I'd like to read uh, this passage. It's not an easy passage, but it's a very important passage. This is God's word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it. We need it as much as the first congregation needed to hear this. And we are tempted to fall away. We're tempted to grumble. We're tempted to disbelieve. We're tempted to disobey. So we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take this word and press it home into our hearts and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're recording through a little iPhone up here, or like an iPhone. Um, 
Now, if you've been a Christian uh, for very long, you've probably had the experience of watching someone make a profession of faith in Christ, followed by dramatic changes in his or her life. And it's a wonderful thing. And we get very excited. That person gets very excited, and we get very excited for them. And it's exciting to see this new joy and radiant smile that they have. But then something happens. A difficult trial hits, an illness, an injury. Uh, Something happens to them. There's a money problem or a job problem or a marriage problem, and their faith is shaken. And he stops coming to church, begins to avoid other Christians. Soon she's back to her old ways. And you wonder, what happened? Was his conversion genuine? Was her faith real? Can Christians lose their salvation? And Jesus explained what I just described in the parable of the sower. He said that the seed of the gospel falls on four kinds of soil. The hard road, the thin soil that's over a rocky layer, the soil that's infested with thorns, and the good soil. And I just described the seed that fell on the rocky soil. And in Jesus' words from Mark 4, he says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Neither they or the thorny ground persevere, to bear fruit unto eternal life. Trying to deal with the S sound. Somehow hitting that. (coughs) Well, the author of Hebrews is concerned that his readers may in fact be the rocky soil that's going to wither under affliction and persecution and suffering. And they're in danger of going back to a more comfortable life in their old Jewish religion because of the imminent threat of persecution and suffering in this newfound Christian life. So he concludes his comparison showing Jesus' superiority over Moses and by saying that we're God's house. And then he adds, (coughs) uh, verse 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, And then he goes on to illustrate his point with a story. It's a story from Jewish history that all of his readers knew well. It's the story of Israel in the wilderness. And to set forth his concern, this writer did what preachers often do. He appropriates another passage of scripture to eloquently frame his thoughts. And that passage is Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, which was the call to worship uh, the standard call to worship in the Jewish synagogues as it was for us this afternoon. And so we get introduced uh, sort of sideways here to the importance of Psalm 95. Every Jew knew this passage by heart. Its opening line served as the call to worship every Sabbath evening in the synagogue with these words, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. Week after week after week, we find these words where the leader in the synagogue would stand up, may have been a rabbi, maybe not, 
And he would say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And of course, we find that here in Hebrews 3, and it's quoting from Psalm 95. And these solemn words are intoned week after week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, year after year, as a call to carefully listen to the voice of God. And so whenever those words come out, Hebrew ears would all of a sudden perk up uh, to, at that sound, to listen to what comes next. And as the writer uses Psalm 95, he's convinced that this opening line and the warning that it introduces is coming directly from the Holy Spirit. He introduces it in verse 7 by saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, He understood that originally the Holy Spirit had warned the psalmist hearers with these words. And then he uses it a thousand years later when the book of Hebrews is written. It's still the Holy Spirit speaking. And for us today, 2,000 years after the use of it in Hebrews, it remains the Holy Spirit's message. There's a timely, uh, timeless urgency to this message. So today, we have to listen to the Holy Spirit's message. It's God's message for the church in an age of suffering and persecution. May we listen with all that we have. Psalm 95 tells about a people who've been redeemed from Egypt by applying the blood of the Passover lamb to their homes. They'd been baptized into Moses through the cloud that enveloped them and through the Red Sea. They'd eaten the heavenly manna and drank water from the rock. And the Apostle Paul teaches about this actually in 1 Corinthians 10. He writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Seemingly they are a redeemed People. Yet Paul goes on to state in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 10, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then he finishes with verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did so that we would not fall into their same sins. So the author of Hebrews is using this to make a point. He's warning us against the soul-destroying sin of hardness of heart. He's saying to avoid hardness of heart, we have to submit our hearts to God's word and to God's ways, especially in times of trial, especially when things get hard especially when we're suffering. Now, last Sunday, I finished with this question. I told you the question remains then, now that you know all about Jesus, that he's the greatest one of all, that Jesus is better, what are you going to do about it? Will you be content to let it remain head knowledge, or will you allow him into your life? The issue is not just knowing who Christ is, but knowing Christ and having a relationship with him. And for those of you who know Christ, you can't, Take that relationship lightly. You have to protect it and promote it and persevere in it. Well, just how do you do that? And that's what the rest of uh, Hebrews 3 is all about. How do you do that? 
It's a warning to keep what you already have. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, in order to do that, we have to see what the rest of Hebrews 3 actually says. So turn with me, Hebrews 3, we'll start again at verse 7. And we find the need to guard your heart. We're actually going to spend most of our time on this point this morning. Verses 7 through 11, guard your heart. As I've already said, this passage begins with an explicit warning against hardening our hearts, starting at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now there's two key words in these verses to help us understand what it means to harden our hearts. And they're the words rebellion and testing in verse 8. The translations here come from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. But the original Hebrew behind the word rebellion is Meribah. And behind testing is Masah. And those are also names of places. Now, if we go to Psalm 95, as it's rendered in your Old Testament, you'll read, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. He's referring directly to Exodus chapter 17 where early on in their wilderness experience, Israel is camped at Rephidim by Mount Sinai, and they have run out of water. And they're in the desert. And they're beginning to quarrel with Moses. And we read the beginning, Exodus 17, verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test? the Lord. And then following God's direction, he struck the rock and it gave water to Israel. And the account concludes with this postscript, Exodus 17, 7, and he called the name of the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Very significantly, the word Meribah is used in only one other place in the Old Testament. And that's in Numbers 20, when essentially the same thing happens at the end of the wilderness experience 40 years later. And they're at Kadesh. And once again, they've run out of water. And once again, they're saying, what are you doing? They're quarreling with Moses. They're threatening rebellion. And Moses tragically strikes the rock twice, which is against what God told him to do. And Moses winds up being excluded from the promised land because of that direct disobedience. 
The point is that the mention of these words at both the beginning and the end of the wilderness experience is meant to tell us that basically it happened the whole time. There's grumbling and quarreling from the beginning to the end of their 40 years in the desert. And what we learn from these accounts in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 is that hardening that took place in the wilderness is rooted in unbelief. Many of those, perhaps most, who left in the Exodus had inadequate faith in God. At first, due to their miserable plight of 430 years of slavery, and then the brilliant leadership of Moses, the repeated miraculous plagues on Pharaoh, the grand miracles of the pillars of cloud and fire, the parting of the sea, and then they were finally ready to follow God anywhere. But then they got out into the desert and they ran out of water. And outrageously they cry out, is the Lord among us or not? And think about that. They've got the cloud by day, fire by night, the parting of the Red Sea, this miraculous delivery from Egypt, all the miracles of that time. And they get out there, they have the manna from heaven. And yet, at the first sign of trouble, is the Lord among us or not? You just want to go back in time and slap people because it's hard to understand. It's this fair weather, herd instinct faith. Good until the first trial when it dissolves in unbelief. The depth of this defective belief produces another sort of underlying characteristic here, and that's irreverent contempt. And that's what really is behind all of this railing against God and railing against Moses. We understand the pathology of a hard heart originates in unbelief, which spawns this contempt and creates a hardness which is worked out in sinful disobedience. And for the psalmist who wrote Psalm 95, the apex of this hard-heartedness comes in Numbers 13 and 14, which is Israel's catastrophic unbelief at the edge of the promised land. And they're sort of their first trip through the desert, they come right up to the promised land and they send in spies. They send in 12 men to check it out and bring back a report. And uh, so they go in there. And the only thing the 12 agree on is the land is good. It's got grapes and pomegranates and figs. I'm not sure those are all good. But they thought they were all good. So land flowing with milk and honey. But then 10 of the men, the majority said, the land is untakeable. We can't go in. And actually what they said, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they had just spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. And that night, unbelief was rampant in Israel. All the people wept. Speaker after speaker rose up calling for deposing 
their leaders and returning to Egypt. Everyone talked about stoning Joshua and Caleb, the two men who dared to believe God would give them the land. They brought back a good report and now they're threatening to kill them for it. But then God answers. We find the account in Numbers 14. It says, Then all the congregation said to stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done among them. And again, God has indicated the hard hearts of his people. They're unbelieving. They're refusing to believe. They despise God. It's astounding. They have all the miracles, the Passover, the Exodus. No one can dispute the reality of these amazing supernatural events. We read about it in the Old Testament, but they lived it. They were there. They saw it. They had the daily provision of the cloud by day and the fire by night. They've been regularly fed with manna and quail from heaven, and they refuse to believe God. The unbelief of God's people is amazing. The unbelief amounts to contempt for God and spawns this sort of ugly family of behavioral stepchildren. There's negativism. It's often referred to as the grasshopper complex. Reminds me of Robert Fulton's detractors. Robert Fulton invented the steamboat. And uh, when he went to test the steamboat the first time on the river, people actually lined the shore and chanted, it will never start, never start, never start. And then it started. And it began to move. And so then they started chanting, it will never stop, never stop, never stop. Unbelief makes small mountains unclimbable. It makes miniature seas uncrossable. Negativism, of course, has a congenital sister in grumbling. The account of Israel's failure here in Numbers mentions grumbling four times. And grumbling comes naturally to a fading faith. And of course, that spawns quarreling the daily menu at Meribah and Massah and in between. And finally, the faithless children just flat disobey as they did when they tried to do it their own way in the wilderness. So we're not left in the dark. We get all of this Old Testament background regarding the hard-heartedness that the book of Hebrews is warning us against. It says, look at all that, everything that happened in Exodus and in Numbers. Don't do that. Don't be like that. In fact, the biblical description is mercifully clear. It presents us with um, telltale signs of hard-heartedness. It originates in unbelief. It produces contempt for God. And it shows itself in negativism, grumbling, quarreling, and disobedience. And what's the result of Israel's hardness of heart? According to Psalm 95... It's withering judgment. Withering judgment. Israel is excluded from the promised land, the place of God's rest. God said, Hebrews 3, verses 10, 11, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. 
They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God forgave his faithless people, but the judgment remains. Just as often he forgives us for our sin, but there's still consequences for that sin. God rarely removes consequences. And it doesn't mean he hasn't forgiven you. He has, but you still have to pay the consequences. We read in Numbers 14, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. No one who is over 20 at the time the exodus occurred entered the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. The rest filled a million graves in the desert over the next 40 years. (coughs) God said he forgave them. He said he pardoned them. (coughs) Sorry, I don't major asthma attack earlier today. (laughs) But with, despite pardoning them, two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb, everyone else dies in the desert. Every single one. And the point the writer of Hebrews wants you to get it's possible to have a great spiritual experience. May not be as great as the Exodus, which is a pretty big deal. And yet you still fall by the wayside when troubles come. This is the Holy Spirit's message to this beleaguered little church from Psalm 95, which is telling us a story from... From Exodus and from Numbers. And our problem is we always want to talk about our beginning. We want to talk about the experience. When we began. And we can talk great about that. And those are great stories. And I love hearing those stories. One of the great things about being on the session is when people join the church, you get to go to their house and hear their story. It's one of my favorite things, and you all have some amazing stories. And nobody can really question them. I mean, it's your story. And nobody could question these people. I mean, they had the experience. They went forward. They walked the aisle. They prayed the prayer. They raised their hand. They left Egypt. They were baptized and identified with God's people. They used the same religious redemptive vocabulary and 
They use it with the same pious tones that we do. But to trust God right now, when it's hard, that's a problem. Because their faith has died. And it's gone. And over and over, Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice. The writer's not saying what you heard years ago or months ago or even last week. Today, if you hear his voice. He's pleading with the people, guard your hearts. Protect them at all costs. Don't let them get hardened to spiritual things. Don't let them go astray. Don't let them turn away from the living God. Look at the Israelites in the desert. They didn't make it to the promised land. Don't let that happen to you. Guard your hearts. We owe it to ourselves to hold this uh, practical mirror of God's word up to our own hearts so we can take an accurate reading of our own spiritual temperature, our own spiritual pulse. What does our behavior indicate? Does it indicate a heart that's getting hard or a heart that's getting soft towards God? So we have this massive warning that comes to us. This is actually the second of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. The first one, if you remember, was do not drift away. This one is do not harden your hearts. But we're not just left with a warning. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is a uh, good preacher, and uh, this is a sermon, and so he has application points. As we teach in the seminary, you should have application points to your sermon. And so he took good notes, and he has application points. And he gives us two very practical things to do. And the first one is to practice community. <coughs> to practice community. He says... Take care, brothers. <coughs> Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. We don't often see those two words together. An evil, unbelieving heart. Leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So in the first part, we heard today, if you hear his voice. <coughs> and in this part, we hear today, exhort one another. Now that phrase, to fall away, means to willfully apostatize. It means to abandon one's beliefs. And such falling away incurs a huge penalty. Because Christ is greater than Moses, the loss incurred in rejecting Christ is greater than the loss incurred in rejecting Moses. The rebels in Moses' day missed the blessing of entering into the promised land. But rebellion against Christ forfeits this greater blessing of entering into the greater promised land, the blessings of eternal life. To turn away from the living God is a frightening error. As we're later warned in Hebrews 10, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And the author of Hebrews doesn't think, well, this is a remote possibility. You know, my church is pretty good. He actually thinks this is a real and present danger. And if we're wise, we will share the same regard for our own souls. The writer's reminding us they're not alone in this endeavor. He tells them to exhort one another. It's often translated as encourage one another. It comes from the Greek word parakaleo, uh, which means counselor or advocate, which is the word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. He wants them to actively encourage each other in their relationship with God. He wants them to actively promote this attitude of devotion to God in each other. He wants them to actively exhort them, exhort each other to strengthen your relationship with God. He wants them to be an active advocate for each other in their relationship to God. It's not just a sense of you need to draw closer to Jesus. It's more the sense of let's strive together as a church to draw closer to Jesus. It's an emphasis on having a stronger relationship with Jesus in community with all the other believers in the church. Think of how differently it would have ended for Israel if they had encouraged each other daily instead of being so negative and grumbling and quarreling and being disobedient. We have to guard our hearts and exhort each other to follow God. And the key here is that I'm not just guarding my heart, but I'm also guarding your heart. And you're guarding my heart. All with the goal of keeping each other from being deceived by sin. And isolation in the Christian life. And particularly isolation from the mutual encouragement of the body of Christ is a dangerous thing. The Lone Ranger Christian is often a precursor to being a non-Christian. In isolation, we are prone to be impressed by the false arguments which underline worldly wisdom. We see this a lot with college students. With some high school, some after college, but often with college. We've got some folks here that are looking at colleges. If you don't get in a church, if you don't get in a Christian fellowship, you're susceptible to this isolation. And some of us have seen that firsthand of the drifting away from being isolated. When you're alone, you're unaccountable, it's tempting to take the easy course instead of the right one. Instead, we're to encourage one another daily, not just on the first day of the week, as says, as long as it is called today. So you get, you get a new opportunity every day to encourage someone else. And we need to go humbly to those people who are drifting, those people who are isolated, those people who we don't see. Maybe we haven't seen them in church uh, for a while. We need to go to them and say, today, brother, today, sister, listen to his voice that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, making tomorrow's repentance and faith so much more difficult. So first thing he tells us is to practice community. The second thing he says is to persevere today. Uh, Verse uh, 14 and 15. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Repeated from the last week. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, which is repeated from the first part. The Israelites had no lack of confidence after the Exodus. I'm pretty sure they thought, we are it. You know, we've got this amazing God. We've got the cloud. We got the fire. You see all the dead Egyptians floating around in the Red Sea? Our God did that. But they don't get very far. They start to question, is God with us? See the fire? It's right over there. And they're asking, is God with us? Often in the church, we have people come to this new knowledge of Jesus. And they have no doubts. They love it. But their confidence starts to soften. Their excitement starts to fade. Their devotion to Jesus starts to disappear. I actually heard Christians saying, I wish I didn't know so much, it'd be easier to believe. One pastor has written a new book about the, the Christian atheist. And he says, because my church, he has this big mega church, he says, my church is full of people who profess faith in Christ, but they live as if they don't believe. He wrote that book about his own church. I'm sure he has good security. Um, and to be sure, we all go through times of doubt. I'm not saying you don't doubt. Everybody doubts. A faith that doesn't doubt is perhaps not real. Because real faith, if you think about it, involves our minds. And last I checked, our minds are pretty fallible. Or at least mine is. And for the biblically literate Christian with some years of living under their belt to uh, mouth excuses for unbelief is just sin. It's just nonsense. We have to learn how to deal with our doubts. You will get doubts from time to time. And you have to learn how to deal with them, how to subject them to the light of God's word, to the counsel of mature brothers and sisters in Christ. But the writer here is telling us we have to consciously strive to work to hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, as you can probably guess, I am a convinced Calvinist. I believe that true Christians persevere. I believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And I believe what the scripture says here. If we do not persevere, we are lost, just as the Apostle John that explained in 1 John chapter 2, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Even a slight lessening of our confidence in the Lord is a warning, it's a red flag. There should be bells and whistles going off. We have to hold our original confidence firm to the end. Perseverance is not a foregone conclusion. And therefore, we must persevere, hold firmly to the end, exercise the will of discipline. The discipline in this case is the discipline of not quitting, the discipline of not giving up, the discipline of not rebelling. That's perseverance, having the confidence that you know that Jesus is better and the best is yet to come. 
That's what will enable you to stick it out in the hard times. And you will have hard times, I promise you. Hard times that come in our homes. Hard times that come in our jobs. Hard times that come at school. Hard times that come to test our faith. The writer is telling them and us, be disciplined, hang in there. Jesus is better and the best is yet to come. And the author of Hebrews warns us right here at the end, again repeating the words of Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Brothers and sisters, if we hear his voice, we have to respond to it. You don't have the option of saying, oh, that's nice. Thanks for sharing. Not to God. You can say that to me, you can say that to each other, you can say that to your wife or your kids, but you don't get to say that to God. God's expecting a response. And he finishes this passage with three tough questions. It's sort of like a Q&A uh, going on here. This session is trying to drive the point home. Um, and he gives us three sets of questions and answers. And the first one's a question about rebellion. He says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? And then he answers it. Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? Was it not the good people, my people, the church people? Point me, all those who died in the desert had rebelled against God. Great beginning, poor ending. Second question is a question about wrath. Verse 17. He says, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? And then he gives the answer. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Point here is those who incurred God's wrath did so because they didn't believe God would provide for them, despite the fact that God was providing for them. It's kind of like sitting down at the dinner table and having the food put in front of you and saying, Mom, won't you cook for us? Now, don't do that. You're not going to get a good response from mom. <laughs> there we go. But that's what they're doing to God. He is providing for them, and they're saying, eh, I don't think God's going to provide for them, right in the midst of his provision. They start with high hopes, but they lack faith. And God doesn't reward unbelief. Then the third question is actually a question about justice. He says, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Again, he answers his own question, but to those who were disobedient. The last point, that unbelief leads to ungodly actions. Disbelief eventually and inevitably leads to disobedience. So these three sets of questions present this descent of hardening of our hearts. Hope gives way to unbelief when things get hard, and unbelief leads to disobedience. And our passage ends by getting back to the main issue. Verse 19, so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. You know, I remember when the Lord of the Rings, I know we have some Lord of the Rings fans here. Um, I think virtually every church does. So it's a very safe illustration. Another point, a good preacher, have to have an illustration. But I remember when the movie... Uh, came out, Lord of the Rings. It had to be at least 10 years ago now. I don't know, maybe longer. Um, but this big time buzz spread through all the churches uh, because so many people were fans of the books. And uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first book of the trilogy, is now this three-hour epic on film. And whether you enjoyed the tale that was woven 
uh, in book form by Tolkien, or you first met Frodo uh, and the gang on the silver screen, you know fairly quickly that the main thing in the book is the ring. The ring is the thing. And the story revolves around one golden ring that's forged to give great power to its wearer. However, as the Middle-earth residents, like Frodo, possess the ring, this funny thing starts to happen to them. The ring begins to possess them. For instance, Frodo uh, Baggins is given the ring by Bilbo Baggins. You can read or watch his story in The Hobbit. But he gave it up only because there's a wise wizard named Gandalf who made him get rid of it. And it's a touching scene, Bilbo reaching in. It's almost as if he's pulling his heart out. You know, when he reaches into his pocket to extract this cold gold ring. It had become to him my precious. Now, a clearer and more frightening transformation occurs in watching Smeagol turn into Gollum. At the time of his death, Smeagol's about 589 years old. Now, my kids think I'm about that old, but not quite. But it's a remarkable age for a creature that was once a hobbit. But he's been deformed and twisted in both body and mind by the corruption of the ring. His chief desire is to possess this ring. It has enslaved him. And he pursues it to his death. And the frightening, gradual transformation that occurs in people who go from being a master of the ring to being mastered by the ring mirror what happens when we cozy up to sin, when we give in to unbelief and we start hardening our hearts. For a while, we can still pull away. It hasn't become so strong that we can break the chains. In time, however, we find ourselves incapable of turning from our sin. It has become to us my precious. And the book of Hebrews is calling out to you this day, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must seek the help of other Christians to stay strong and resist temptation. If we watch and pray for one another as Jesus told the disciples to do in Matthew 26, it can help us turn from temptation and this gradual slide into sin's abyss. In the fellowship of the ring, Gandalf helped Bilbo break free from this ring's grasp, from its control, from its possession over him. Who is helping you break free from the grip of sin? Who is helping you break free from the grip of unbelief? See, the real issue in not entering the promised land is not the Israelites' dumb actions, but it's their lack of faith. It's their unbelief. And that's why it's so important for these Hebrew Christians in this little storm-tossed first century church. And why it's just as important for the Christians in this storm-tossed 21st century church to guard our hearts from hardening, to exhort one another in our relationship with Christ, to persevere every day in the disciplines of the ordinary Christian life. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. 
May we be people who hear the word and hold it fast in a good heart and bear fruit as we persevere in the Christian life. Think about that. You need to pray. I need a drink of water. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you. You have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin. Open our eyes that we might see where we disbelieve. And then direct us to Jesus and help us to see him. Enable us to be people of the word who hold it fast and guard our hearts and practice community and persevere today. Drive these truths deep into our hearts and make our hearts believe no matter what is going on that Jesus is better. Amen.